Hey everybody, just a quick word before we get today's show kicked off. This episode, like all the rest of them, is brought to you by the generous financial support of our patrons. Producing two podcasts per week takes a tremendous amount of time and effort, and we wouldn't be able to do that without the support of the members of the Dead Pundit Society. We're in the midst of trying to expand some of our operations. We're going to be producing video content. We're going to be expanding the number of voices that you hear on the podcast here. We're going to be producing new podcasts, uh, focusing on explicit themes and topics. So we have a lot of really exciting plans coming down the pipeline, but we can't do it without your generous support. So we're taking a cue from our comrades over across the sea at Navarra Media, and we're asking all of our listeners, if you're able, to donate one hour's wage per month to our operations in order to keep this project up and running. And since we're well aware that neoliberal capitalism has not been kind to many of us, if you don't have that disposable income, we're asking something much easier. It requires no money and very little effort and time. If you see our posts on social media, go ahead and give it a like and give it a share. And if you don't see those posts, go ahead and make one. If you hear an episode that you really like and you think that your followers or your friends would like to hear it as well, go ahead and share it. Tell people. Phone them up on WhatsApp. Do whatever you have to do. Get the New Left Agenda out there. We've got a really exciting moment in, the, in our midst here in the, in the coming two years, working up to 2020 in the United States. Uh, I think the Bernie wave has far from crested. And we can play a really key role in making that happen. So help support the New Left Agenda. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. All right, on with the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me on the line is a familiar voice that many of you will know by now. Brought him back on the show to update us on some hot developments emerging from the worlds of Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the left electoral foreign policy arena. Daniel Bessner, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Adam. Always a pleasure, and I come equipped with the hottest of takes. Oh, we've got some real hot takes coming for all the people <laughs> of course. Out here today. Of course. Just as a reminder, uh, Daniel is the Pyle Assistant Professor of U.S. Foreign Policy at the University of Washington. And uh, most importantly for our purposes today, he he wrote uh, you, rather, you, talking to you, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel the man. I prefer Daniel to wrote, be referred to in the third person, actually. So if you could just do that from now on. It feeds the ego, doesn't it? You wrote an op-ed that was published in the New York Times. Yes. It was It was given a, a really sort of catchy, if not odd, title. But uh, <laughs> it was called, What Does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Think About the South China Sea? Which is, yeah, again, not, we're, we're really, really talking about the South China Sea. It, 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 we're, it's we're talking not, in fact, air. mentioned in the, uh, in the op-ed. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of shows that, like, this is the kind of uh, geopolitical obsession that the American, uh, you know, pundit elite has uh, in terms of like war with China and North Korea, right? Yes, uh, it's it's what's serious, capital S, serious. You have to be a serious man. Very serious SM. foreign policy. Very figures. serious, very serious. No, of course, it, I think that's a great way of looking at it. It shows what the the uh, emergence elite, at least, or what would have been the emergence elite. Maybe we could perhaps change that. Uh, thinks to be the uh, that's sort of center of geopolitics, and that's the U.S. Chinese fight. Right. So that you wrote that piece in, in many case, in many senses, I think you, you prefigured a lot of those arguments on your last appearance, which was only uh, just, uh, about a, about a month ago. So 
people shouldn't be completely unfamiliar with this, but we're going to we're going to trot that out a little bit and then we're going to move on to Bernie Sanders foreign policy pivot, you might call it, which I think is a really, really welcome development. And we want to both sort of applaud that and assess and analyze, you know, his his postures there and the way he's viewing foreign policy going into what looks to be an inevitable 2020 presidential run. here. Yes, def- uh, definitely. <laughs> it seems he's like definitely it's announcing <laughs> his uh, his his level of he's, he's trying to upend the capital V capital S very serious foreign policy establishment. Right. By appearing at the Johns Hopkins. What is it? The, uh, the School of Advanced and International Studies. Yes. S.A.I.S. <laughs> Paul Nitz's school, who, if anyone has a little history lesson, the man who was behind NSC-68, which greatly increased U.S. armaments and basically created the military-industrial complex uh, after the outbreak of the Korean War. So that's that's what we're talking about here. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about the Georgetown, Hopkins, uh, you know, American sort of – this this is the the Washington, D.C. Beltway think tank bureaucratosphere. Exactly. That's a great way to think about it. People at the schools like SAIS pronounced SACE uh, are, are often the people, at least in the past, who have gone into mostly Democratic administrations, but also some Republican administrations. But you see uh, this might be changing. And just a, a quick tangent, the Henry Kissinger chair, distinguished chair at SACE, wrote an article uh, critiquing the op-ed we're about to talk about after, which was, um, in my mind, uh, very wildly off base, comparing the uh, opinions that I talk about to uh, the sort of the far right-wing Trump foreign policy, which just shows, I think, the establishment is really sort of treading water and doesn't know what to do if they're trying to equate me with Donald Trump, which is as wacky a thing as one could possibly Jesus. do. Yeah, Jesus. it's so it's yeah. this is the moment where it. <laughs> That's a, they're reaching. That's, I mean, that's a tool from the from the playbook. I would yeah. say uh, that goes back to the beginning of globalization, where like globalization was seen by the kind of liberal foreign policy and economic uh, establishment elites as this kind of irresistible force that right. can. It's just a, it's a force of nature. It's it's this kind of uh, teleological inevitability. It's it's the wave of the future, and anyone who stands against this kind of global society is just uh, inherently reactionary. And so this is where these kind of bullshit horseshoe <laughs> theories emerge right, right when exactly. it comes to foreign policy that like we can't we can't sort of um if you can't distinguish the anti-globalism of steve bannon from bernie sanders well then you know then the problem isn't with those you know the problem isn't with the leftists the problem is with your frame of analysis and the most fun thing about this whole experience is that that frame of analysis is said to be anti-ideological or a-ideological uh. That yep. it's, it's yep. there's no ideology right. inherent in that. It's just the way that's it right. is, you know, that's and right. so that's such an absurd uh, thing. So this is what we're up against. And, and it's uh, people should just be aware of <laughs> this system within which uh, I'm trying to operate or, or we as left critics are trying to operate. Yeah, very well said. So let's uh, we're going to get into that say speech uh, very soon. But again, like I think it's interesting that they hosted him. It, maybe we're seeing a turn in the for, the liberal por- foreign policy establishment. Uh, you know, I, you know, I think uh, having known some of these people, being in the Washington D.C. area myself, I know these say people. I've had beers with them, and you know, just sort of been right. around their hangouts, their haunts, and and you know, most of them are good liberals. And I mean, there's even some Bernie Bros in there. But it's in- it's going to be interesting to see how the imperatives of managing uh, you know a global empire. Right. Sort of are impacted by people's own sort of personal political preferences. Right. And oftentimes people have never even thought about the fact that uh, we are an empire. 
Uh, so there's, there's even so a fundamental, uh, discursive tension really happening between the way that people like you and I or Chomsky would talk about it and the way the Henry A. Kissinger distinguished professor at SACE would talk about it. So that's also an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I think, you know, in the way that you could you could certainly parse this out much better than I, but the, the sort of historical development, the dialectic that you see is this kind of Tony Giddens pro-globalization third way that kind of emerges from the Tony Blair and the Bill right. Clinton eras in the in the 90s. Uh, and that, you know, which, which brings us humanitarian intervention, right? This kind of anti-ideological, uh, you know, worldview, this sort of humanitarian intervention, right? It's, it's inevitable. It's a very odd thing. And then you see the, tra- the the pivot after in the early 2000s with the neocons and, and the, 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 the idea that America is the police force of the world. And we, we, that's our role. And it's a, it's a, you know, the, the only just posture for such an empire to take. And there are a lot of people who, who came out to justify that as well, moving towards into the Obama era, which like, you know, I think that was a very convoluted notion, but the point being is that it's hard to say exactly where this kind of progressive foreign establishment elite is headed with the failures that are piled up at our feet over the course of the last 30, 35, 40 years of foreign policy. Right. And which it's also very difficult to know because the oxygen of the entire foreign policy conversation, without exaggeration, is mostly conducted and, and operated by people roughly over 50 yeah. uh, and many over 60 as well. And so their frame of reference is, is very different from your and mine. Uh, and that, and not to be a, a generational warrior, but just to point out that different historical experiences lead people to have different conclusions about things like what the United States should do in the world. So this is where you get someone like Michael Walzer, uh, a, you know, a good social Democrat and, and editor of dissent for, for decades, really kept that magazine alive, being a hardcore humanitarian interventionist to the degree that he basically uses a new his new book, A Foreign Policy for the Left, to argue in favor for it. Uh, in favor of it. And so th- it's an interesting moment. Uh, uh, we're seeing ideological realignments and sort of hollowing outs and also sharpenings in uh, in a way that we haven't seen for, for, I would really say, since the 1940s. So it's an interesting moment. It's a, it's a very plastic and liminal moment we're in right now. Interesting, interesting. So let's get into it. So very soon after you appeared on Dead Punnett Society last time, uh, you had a New York Times op-ed appear again with the odd but somewhat catchy and as you as you mentioned all fair, somewhat mansplainy title. I think you're right about that. What does Alexandria <laughs> yeah. Ocasio-Cortez think about the South China Sea? And this sort of lead there or whatever is the uh, the rising left needs more foreign policy. Here's right. how it can start. So tell right. us, what is the, what kind of foreign policy does the rising left need? Sure. What kind of perspective do you bring to that? So there, there's been a lot of discussion. I'm by no means the only one to, to talk about uh, the left and, and it, its apparent lack of foreign policy, because basically in 2016, I think Bernie himself would admit this and his advisors would admit this. He, he absolutely didn't make foreign policy uh, a center of his campaign, uh, whereas on the, on the other hand, Trump did make foreign policy a center of his campaign, at least to the degree that he used the disasters of Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya to basically lambast the entire U.S. foreign policy establishment. And, and and they came out with letters against him. Uh, people like Max Boot, who, who just published a book about why he's no longer a conservative. Uh, Bill Kristol, 
uh, came out with letters against him and, and no one cared because, you know, frankly, Trump was right. They were, uh, they did contribute to disastrous foreign policies and, and the entire establishment did that. So basically a lot of people have been noticing that the left, um, doesn't really have a response or a positive vision of foreign policy beyond, uh, either we talked about this last time, uh, an anti, knee-jerk anti-imperialism, which is good. But again, as I said last time, isn't a foreign policy, uh, on one hand. And then on the other hand, sort of a democratic national security establishment light. Like the U.S. should still be the prime nation, and uh, they would usually probably not use the term empire, but it shouldn't do things like invade Iraq, which is mm-hmm. basically Democratic Party, muscular national security liberalism. So a lot of people have been talking about what does the left do now. And uh, a lot of these things have been great. Uh, I particularly like the work of Aziz Rana. Uh, and Asli Bani, I, I apologize if I'm uh, not apologizing her name uh, correctly, but I think their work in the Boston Review on, on Syria and then Aziz's work in M plus one have been really excellent on sort of laying out particular policy positions. Uh, and Daniel Nexon in Foreign Affairs and then uh, Stephen Wertheims is kind of generally in the ether with his critiques of Trump militarism have been good. But oftentimes they, I found that they, they, they um, either discuss very specific foreign policy positions uh, and or or focus on Trump's person. And those are all very needed. But what I wanted to do was sort of think about the the fundamental principles of of what a left wing foreign policy uh, could and should be. And in particular, to relate it to to what I would call um, fundamental left wing values, Uh, which is why even in this op ed about foreign policy, the first two points are basically focused on domestic, uh, which is democracy and accountability um so yeah so so we could talk about that more whatever if you want to comment on whatever i said or yeah no not at all let's 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 do let's get into that so your first tenant there is the emphasis on democracy which is very much on brand in terms of what what we're seeing in uh, the global uh political climate right now uh fearfully i think for for many of us uh jair bolsonaro in brazil right it looks uh, to be rising to power this is like real uh proto-fascism uh you know i would say in, in some in many senses classical fascism where you see the rise and revolt of certain segments of domestic capital that have been in opposition to the workers party for quite some time they've they've sort of um, you know established a sort of semi-juridical coup against that party putting many of the members in jail as well as uh, DeSilva, of course and you know it's not looking good for democracy worldwide is not looking good. No, it's, uh, it's not that. looking good. Uh, and particularly in Latin America, you have a very typical from what I understand of the his, his, history and historiography of uh, what might be termed the revolt of the middle classes, uh, which has happened mm-hmm. periodically as Latin America has taken various left turns. And it's the last century of its history. There have been periodic basically revolts of the middle classes where they support a more right wing, oftentimes authoritarian or military, but not always uh, leader. So we also have to think about this in the larger scheme of this post so-called pink tide moments in Latin America. What I was trying to get at in the op-ed is that foreign policy, and we talked about this in my last DPS appearance, has been the uh, since the 40s really created by a very small cabal. Uh, of people in semi-state institutions like RAND or the Center for International Studies at MIT, or even uh, executive institutions, and more importantly, like the National Security Council, the CIA, and the DOD. Um, the DOD, much more than the State Department, the State Department has been periodically underfunded and is now just basically what we're seeing in the post-Trump State Department is just the ho- complete hollowing out of an institution that has been progressively hollowed out over the last decades. But basically, the elite foreign policy sphere also includes 
the military as well, this professional class of warriors. So what I wanted to emphasize in that first point was that this isn't acceptable. On, on, uh, at the very least, an institutional level, Congress needs to assert its war-making powers. The United States, I believe, hasn't officially declared war since 1941. Yeah, um, I think the last declaration of war was against Romania in terms of, you know, as part of the Axis, if I'm, if I'm uh, correct on that. And so... Yeah, which is crazy. So, and this was constitutionally, I mean, there's a lot of problems with the Constitution, but if we're going to pretend to abide by it, this is one of the fundamental things that Congress did was yeah. uh, allow the executive to go to war. Congress has completely abdicated its responsibility. But it's a uh, hell of a 75 years of peace we've had here. Yeah, no, it's great. We haven't had any peace. A lot, lot, lot of I killing mean, and bombs yeah. being dropped for 75 years of un, 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 unprecedented Undeclared uh, war. global peace. And yeah. so this is also the rise of the imperial presidency, right? Which is why it's problematic when we have someone like Trump in there, because that office is just far too powerful, particularly when it, uh, it affects so many of the other people around the world uh, with, you know, with America as the head of a global empire. But even beyond Congress's reassertion of, of its role, what I wanted to, to try to get at with the, just the broad principle of democracy is bringing, you know, what might be termed ordinary people back into the conversation in a serious way, thinking about mechanisms that we could develop to, to have more of a check that even beyond representative democracy in Congress, but more of a, a person to person check, at least somewhat on what the United States does abroad. And, and there are very ways, different ways you could do about that, uh, go about this. One way that I think would be important for the left to do, we mentioned this a little on last time's B-side, was to think about ways it could make inroads into the enlisted um, men and women of the military, which um, the left has totally abandoned uh, in terms of you know, winning over the enlisted class, which I think is is not a particularly wise strategic move, but especially if there's internal criticism within the military as people rise up through the ranks, I think would be great. Uh, and also, again, just ordinary people, town halls, um, various types of local communal mechanisms to let, let your voice be heard. Um, and that's also related to getting rid of the military industrial complex. So Congress people don't rely on it for so much pork and it, it necess necessitates an entire socialist transformation of the economy ultimately. Just so it's just important to see how these things remain connected. Right. I think a lot of people would have a knee jerk reaction against what you just put forward with respect to having enlisted troops in the U.S. military, right. you know, being principled socialists. I think the, right. the, the way that we have viewed uh, militarism and imperialism and the you know the US military itself concretely over the past uh, 40 years as a left is to just kind of abstain and dis right. just to just to not denounce itself denounce renounce uh, remove yourself from those people and, and to the extent that we have coordinated with that that crowd it's been uh you know defectors yeah uh, war resistors or veterans people, or veterans veterans who need support but have sort of turned against uh they've sort of seen the way that they have become uh you know collateral damage of this uh, imperial machine and you know i mean before people sort of uh you know shirk that responsibility uh you know uh, that you just laid out there i think people should look to the uk where this domestic abuser like fascist thug tommy robinson was sort of cavorting and parading and taking pictures with the British military. You know, this right. British troops sort of smiling and treating Tommy Robinson, this this figure, um, as as a hero. Right. And so that's what happens when you neglect an institution as powerful as the military. You they sort of uh, self select and filter filter these kind of or just totally stop yeah totally stomp out any left-wing opposition i mean yeah. um you, you there's absolutely no base in the military and and even beyond the, the more recent you know conservative turn 
um, in, in the military, uh, here and abroad. It's just like, look, look at history. So many of the major socialist, uh, rebellions and revolutions were spurred by soldiers. I mean, most famously, people want to Google the Kiel mutiny, K-I-E-L, which was a mutiny of soldiers in Northern Germany that essentially turned over the monarchy, you know, was the, was the, was the final, uh, was was the final push that really got rid of the the German monarchy, and so I think it's an important thing just to to recognize that these institutions that control mass violence are very serious institutions, particularly in a heavy heavily militarized society like our own. How many vets go on to be cops? You know, it's it's all related, yeah, right. the international and the domestic. And I just don't think that as a, as a in terms of strategy that we should entirely write off such an important segment of the policymaking sphere of, of U.S. foreign policy and domestic military policing and national security. Um, so that's something that I, I wanted to get at with that point of a, a democracy. Very number one. Right. I think what we've seen since 9-11 and the massive, you know, this this over buildup of military just uh, power that we've seen in the war on terror and the war in Iraq and moving forward uh, into into the present is that there's this like reserve army of repressive security apparatus. Right. right that's been produced where you just there's no shortage of people who have weapons training, military, uh, you know, backgrounds who are ready, willing and able to become the hired thugs of whomever you know has the money the capital the power the influence and uh, it's, it's either that or starve in many instances right and this is and this is also like a, a long-standing project so i'm doing some research for my next book and i'm reading kurt courtesy lemay most famous as the uh, inspiration for general jack <laughs> d ripper in straight in dr strangelove but the head of the strategic air command but i'm reading i'm reading him when he was a young a young guy like in his late 30s and during world war ii and he he has a great letter to the nra where he's like, I'm really worried that our boys, when they're coming home, they're not going to learn how to, they, they're, they're not going to know how to like, the next generation essentially isn't going to know how to handle arms. So what we need to do is sort of make an alliance between the military and the NRA in order to, you know, train the next generation. So, I mean, the right wing is, is, is doing this and we, we should not give up one of the major social institutions of the United States, a heavily militarized society to the uh, total opposite political persuasion. In my opinion, wow. even if we reject, even if we reject the entire purpose of this military structure, which I do, it's still a historical reality, as Marx would say, and we have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Curtis LeMay, a famous <laughs> uh, traitor and uh, would-be fascist coup orchestrator at one point. Uh, classic salt of the earth uh, American <laughs> yeah. in, in many respects, if yeah. you will, uh, to, be a little a bit, uh, to be a little cynical about our history. Yeah, not, not, not a good legacy, but, but he's winning. He's winning. I think let's be clear about that. In oh, a way, yeah. I think that one of the ways he's that won. we can overturn <laughs> that dominance, he's absolutely won. If you're from places like I am, where with, with veterans, uh, you know, I mean, these people were fairly apolitical, fairly, um, you know, I don't know, just normie, you know, Americans, and they go off to war. They have the kind of culture that pervades that kind of. Uh, the bravado and the you know the 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 violence and the militarism and the um, the the romanticization of killing and death and destruction and dominance it, it changes people it changes right. people right yeah. no it absolutely does I mean it, it's a it's an incredibly difficult experience to go through and it's just I think the left needs to, needs to really just think more about that whole sphere. If, if, if people democratically decide that they want to write it off, that's fine, but we should have the uh, conversation.
Anyway, enough of that conversation. So what's the next tenant? What's the next tenant of this? Uh, uh, so no case? worries. So the, the, ne- the next tenant is, is accountability. And this is just the classic reality of living in a professionalized world where professional communities, whether they be lawyers, whether they be doctors, whether they be the Catholic church, uh, or whether they be the foreign policy establishment tend to tend to protect their own. And so um, the reason that they protect their own is uh, for because they can, you know, there but for the grace of God go I on one hand, and then there are internal incentives not to step out of line. But I, what I argue in the piece is that any sort of uh, democratic uh, left-wing, really DSA, socialist foreign policy must take accountability seriously. It must develop both uh, institutional mechanisms to ensure that people like Paul Wolfowitz don't, you know, make a career after destroying uh, the uh, Iraq, then going to become president of the World Bank, and then going to the mm. ADI, then being on Jeb Bush's foreign policy team, that this shouldn't be something that's allowed, but that you need sort of a, 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 an institutional mechanism, and I even think more importantly, a cultural mechanism uh, that is able to sanction people. People. I, I, I don't think it's actually wise to do things like guillotines or, or show trials unless people uh, uh, we should do real trials if people break, yeah. you know, domestic and international law. Um, but basically, there should be serious professional sanctions uh, for people who make disastrous decisions and that you just can't be like Max Boot. Keep on trying to uh, make a career as a foreign policy analyst when everything that you recommended was disastrous. It just shouldn't be allowed. Just you see these people reinventing themselves time and time again, and you know, of right. course, I I need to say nothing about the way that George W. Bush has. I I, I would say, I mean, I don't think he's done anything to to. I don't resuscitate his his image. I think it's been the the liberal journalist class that's that's been that's that's done that. Um, but yeah, throat lozenges aside, there there's a whole class of people who time and time again are able to reinvent themselves and whitewash their crimes and their their terrible prescriptions. Right, uh, Max Max Boot Prime among them, and I think this this really comports very well with the conversation I had uh, last week with Heidi Matthews, who's sort of pushing. The, the notion of of using you know criminal domestic and international criminal law to our benefit right, right. In a way we can work with this in very creative generative ways i think that you're pointing to it's a, there's a lot of a lot of synergy here daniel is what uh, i'm getting always, at we're, always, we're so maximizing our routines we're circling back so we're going to circle the wagons and uh, <laughs> and, and rejigger everything it's going to be absolutely produce a lot of stick to with these policies it's no important. no it's totally it's totally true but i think the left needs to take that seriously. Otherwise, it's just going to be disaster after disaster. And we're going to have our own failures. You know, should we ever govern? We should uh, we should live by the courage of our convictions. And if we have our own failures, and we should also be sure that people who make disastrous choices don't remain in power for other uh, for forever. Otherwise, there'll eventually be some sort of horrible reaction, as we see in Trump and the rise of nationalism, populism, which, of course, isn't only caused by this or even primarily caused by this. But it's one of the concatenation of factors that makes something like Trump possible. Mm-hmm. Right. So the next tenant, that's right on. The next tenant is anti-militarism. Right. And Bernie Bernie Sanders pointed to this. He really led with that say speech right. a couple of weeks ago by pointing out, opening his 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 intervention there by saying, you know, this is a question about foreign policy. Absolutely. You know, he he mentioned that, uh, and I haven't checked these numbers. I presume they're true enough. We spend seven hundred billion dollars a year yeah. uh, in our military budget. Then again, you know, money just sort of slips through the cracks of the wall and the holes of the walls of the Pentagon. There's so, so much corruption and graft; and, it's, it's ridiculous. So who's to even say exactly where this money is going? There's so no much one that's knows. Accounted for. It's just a black hole. 
But what he points to very quite rightly is this isn't just a question of foreign policy and, and anti-militarism, you know, abroad saying that we spend more in defense than than the next 10 nations below us, uh, <laughs> which, by the way, most of whom are our allies. Almost all of them are, right. are very, very, very close allies. And to yeah. even use the word ally really, really undersells the, the level of integration and, and really domination that I think the U.S. military has over these other countries. Yeah, like Saudi Arabia and Israel and Israel especially is basically just armed by the United States in, in a serious in a serious degree it's it's not it's, it's not silly to refer to it as part of the US military structure not totally right. but in some real way Right. So the level of integration there, it really undermines this notion that the, the 10, the 10 uh, nations below us on that pecking order and right. military spending are in any way sort of separate from us. So that's it. It's even worse than it looks is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And, and also, I wasn't able to get into the op-ed, but you know, I mentioned in the op-ed, there's around the U.S. has roughly 800 military bases and roughly 1,000 if you count certain things as military bases. Uh, and, and compare this to what Russia has. Russia has, uh, by my last uh, looking into this few weeks ago, 21. So this is not an order of magnitude more. This is orders and orders and orders of magnitude more. And, and the point anti-militarism is really, um, it starts with basically drawing down the empire, drawing down the empire bases that has existed or started to be built in the late 1940s, but also encompassed in this um, would be trying to change our military culture just domestically. For example, having fighter jets fly at, at the Super Bowl or at football games or or, or sort of take um, pleasure in the beauty uh, of armaments, I think is a really problematic thing that has been going on for about a century and a half. And, and it's very damaging, I think, culturally. So thinking about ways to move past this hyper-masculine, hyper-militarized culture is a, a, another important way to sort of draw down the militarism. And, and this brings to the next point, of course, which is why I think we're able to do this, which is because we don't actually face very many serious threats uh, in terms of our security. So I think the left, uh, so the fourth point, just to, to underline that is threat deflation. So I think the left uh, has not been historically great with answering questions about security. So assuming that security is a real thing and that at some point it's bad if your nation state, which is a political community that you and I want to transcend, but is nevertheless the one we currently live in, if your nation state is under a, a attack or, 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 or actually threatened, then, then that's a threat. And I think there's a legitimate role for armies in political life, right? I'm not uh, a, a complete pacifist in reality, even though I might be theoretically. So the question is, given the what might be called the balance of power politics of current geopolitics, where does the United States stand? And I think the United States is incredibly safe and has been for decades. And I actually think that the hangover of the 1930s with the confrontation with Nazism, where at least it was it was viewed as an existential threat, even though uh, Nazis might not have been able to literally invade the United States. I think there is a legitimate reason to believe that Hitler was an existential threat in, in a real way. The United States has nevertheless defined a series of existential threats from the Soviet Union, which I think we actually could have made peace with the Soviet uh, made peace with the Soviets quite early on uh, in the Cold War. Uh, and more recently, particularly after 9-11, places like Iran, uh, Iraq, um, North Korea, the so-called axis of evil. And then later on, even more absurdly, uh, the, Isla the Islamic State, which posed absolutely no serious security threat to the United States. Now, what people might be thinking is what about a terrorist attack? Right. A so-called terrorist attack. And we could get I don't have time to get into the problem problematics of that word terrorist, but let's just use it in its common sense term. Uh, terrorist attack to me is more of a byproduct of an interconnected and globalized world. Um, of sort of these various travel connections, these technological connections, these various interconnections, and not really an indicator of a lack of American security. It's sort of like 
Americans want to get rid of risk totally, which is impossible. So I think a a good thing the left could do is just on a very basic level, make the security argument that guys were actually really safe, chill out. And guys being uh, the men who basically control the American foreign policy establishment, though not all, of course, there's Hillary Clinton, Susan Rice, Samantha Power and Anne-Marie Slaughter more recently. And and of course, Condoleezza Rice and Bush. But generally, it's a male sphere um, to to get the men who who control this to to appreciate how safe we are. Even more importantly, I think, is to make a grassroots effort to educate the the, the American people and and, um, whoever they rely on that we're safe and we have to stop pretending like we're not. Right. Well said. It's one of the reasons why uh, I, I wanted to call you up again here and get you on the show is to point out some of the parallels. And this seems to be a really good time to do it in terms in, in terms of like the kind of epochal shift that is possible, I think, in this in this particular moment that you pointed to in the beginning of our chat where uh, the old the old stories, the old narratives, the old players have lost a lot of credibility. Even the ones who have, who have been able to reinvent themselves, the max boots and so on, are really struggling to do that time and time again. They are. I mean, even if you see with the response to Boots thing, it's it's really critical. It's almost, you know, you, I don't know if you saw, but Tom Nichols went on a Twitter rant about how people should be praising Boot for changing his mind, which um, which just shows like people <laughs> Those are, the are enablers, not praising right? him. Those are the yeah, enablers. It's, it's, Those it's, are the people ridiculous. who enable these shifts. Um, yeah, it's, I, it's 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 really abur- absurd. But sorry, it's sorry almost like there's an elite policy <laughs> journalistic class out there who Never cares more own. about protecting their own than they do about their own alleged, you know, uh, agenda or or cause. Uh, yeah, funny, how, funny. How that. dare you? How dare you? Funny Adam. that it's funny how that works. Anyway, uh, in group solidarity beats. You know, I don't know the reason Anything. why they're allegedly <laughs> there in the fucking first place. It's almost yeah. like they're just using their anyway. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Touche. Someone should do something. We could call it. Uh, we could call it uh, Dead Pundit Society. It's a good idea. I'd contribute yeah. a Patreon to that. Totally. Yeah, yeah, I would too. Anyway, so so this apocal shift that I think that you're pointing to, which is a, it's a possibility. I think it's, it's it's somewhat a long shot. Again, our our prospects prospects of success on the left are always a long shot. Right. The system is literally working against us in some ways. In other ways, it's producing failure after failure, which gives us opportunities. Exactly. But the last time we saw something like this on the horizon was in 1948 with a man named Henry Wallace. Right. Exactly. Wallace was once uh, FDR's vice president. Uh, He led in many senses uh, a multiracial socialist, uh, certainly hard left progressive wing of the liberal establishment that cohered around the New Deal. A lot of young idealistic uh, you know, th- thinkers from the pencil pushers to the policymakers themselves sort of flooded Washington, D.C. in the early 1930s, inspired by waves of, of you know, progressive and radical change, even from places like the Soviet Union. Right. Uh, Very to, much so, to, the Soviet Union. To, to the New Deal. These were these were solid socialists who were very sympathetic of the early Bolshevik project who were ushered into the government and uh, Henry Wallace was kind of the Pied Piper in some in some senses, you might say, at the at the highest rung of that project, and, and he took a lot of heat from his own party members, uh, the Dixiecrats, uh, infamously, 
you might say, well, they, they took him down for sure. And he was ultimately defeated uh, resolutely in 1948, uh, progressive party uh, presidential candidacy there. And um, it fell flat on its face due to the pressures and contradictions of the emerging Cold War. Right. And uh, exactly. so uh, enough of a enough of a spiel for me. You're the Wallace guy. What, what did Wallace uh, what was Wallace's agenda in 1948 coming from that progressive party platform? And uh, what are some of the parallels with what Bernie Sanders is trying to pull off right now? Sure. So so what's important to understand about Henry Wallace is that he essentially presented a different way of understanding international relations as they were being developed in the late 1940s. So uh, essentially, just to give a bit of a historical background, in February 1946, a diplomat named George Kennan, who many people who listen to this might have heard of, developed uh, a strategy that came to be called containment. And the idea was that the United States would necessarily fight uh, a war with the Soviet Union for essentially two reasons. Uh, first, that Marxist-Leninist ideology, Kennan argued, uh, poisoned the Soviet mind and made them believe that they would necessarily have to fight a, a world-ending war with communism, uh, sorry, with capitalism, uh, communism versus capitalism. And then second, that there was something about the Russian or Soviet mind. There was slippage there that necessarily necessarily made them insecure. And there were Kennan said there were reasons for this. They they didn't have necessarily secure borders, but not to get too into much, the details. Too much vodka. It's too cold yeah. up there. It, it, um, it was essentially like a it was a Russian mind argument a little bit, which was a popular argument in in the late 1940s, early 1950s. Margaret Mead, of course, wrote a famous study about uh, how baby swaddling or lack of baby swaddling informed the Soviet mind. And that's why there's a Cold War. But uh, Classic but, uh, 20th century racialism, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mid-20th century sort yeah. of racial or, or orientalizing in, in a real way. But but basically the important point for Kennan was that there was going to be a Cold War and that you were you were necessarily going to have to fight some sort of war with, with the Soviet bloc. And what Wallace was trying to do, I think, at least in his speech, the way to peace was to essentially argue that war wasn't necessarily inevitable with the Soviet Union and that there were ways through which one could get around that. And I think this is this is evident in the work of someone like Harry Dexter White, who who is, of course, um, Keynes is his famous counterpart. But White was the American who is basically the American Keynes um, helped with the establishment of the post-war Bretton Woods system, et cetera. And White argued that some form of um, economic interchange or economic exchange was necessarily going to bring peace. But what happened after the Cold War is that you get the rise of this type of a very important and influential security thinking, the security discourse, uh, which is the world that I think we're living in today uh, explicitly. So to, to understand the rise of this discourse, I think you need to appreciate how in the first half of the 20th century, there were a lot of liberal hopes that that the types of Whiteian exchanges I just described would necessarily lead to peace. But the confrontation with Hitler in the 1930s, who, who was really a, a, a person who was um, who was motivated by what would be considered irrational or irrational causes and who was really an evil, uh, terrible and destructive person. The American confrontation with Hitler really gave the lie to many people that you could uh, think about international relations in a way that you could uh, economic interchange uh, bolstered by things like the League of Nations and cultural uh, interchange would lead to peace. But the confrontation with Hitler really, I, in my opinion, in my historical opinion, at least, um, led to the rise of this type of security thinking where um, what matters most is how you can project power. 
which matters most is whether you're able to take on the Soviet Union uh, militarily. And this, I, 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 again, in my opinion, became the governing logic of U.S. foreign security policy since the 1930s, but really since it was institutionalized in World War II in places like the National Security Council, the CIA, etc. And what's really interesting to me is that in this recent Bernie speech, you could see how Bernie, who, again, is someone that I really uh, respect and uh, adore is is someone who um, still falls into this security language trap by constructing what I consider to be this, this authoritarian access. Now, what, what, what's the question that I think we could discuss is whether this is or is not strategically wise. I'm, I'm starting to come to the opinion that it actually is strategically uh, important for Bernie to be do to do something like this, because the language of security is really the language through which we understand not only U.S. foreign policy, but re- re- really what is the social good in our society. Uh, security is really a, a top social good. Uh, and so I think Bernie is essentially using that language in order to promote what is the other and I think the most more important half of uh, his speech, which is the first half, this sort of anti-militaristic be- begin to draw down uh, the empire um, sort of framework. So that's just to give a, a little primer on where I think we are in this current moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. Let's do that for the remainder of the of the episode here. You know, I, I think like that that's a really interesting perspective because on the one hand, you know, Bernie is definitely reacting against this fetishization of the security, you know, state, the kind of macho, muscular uh, foreign policy that you see uh, that, that, you know, for, for all of its varieties, that all of its different fruit flavors that it's come in in the past uh, 35 some odd years right. from the third way of Clinton and humanitarian intervention to the muscular sort of neoconservatism into this odd like Obama uh, triangulation of like just drone bomb people and occupy countries and, and right. more undeclared wars and so Which on. Which is to have change. the war without the American death, essentially. That's what yeah. I view Obama's as, having the war without the deaths of Americans. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So domestic wokeness compared with sort of barbarism abroad. Uh, right. without, without the without the body bags uh, being shipped right. back, uh, which is very similar to sort of the shift in Vietnam in 1973 from sort of the draft to bombing. Right. This is a, tr- a thing we've seen before in American history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, when Americans lose their lose their taste for for uh, troop deaths of troops, uh, we we pivot to to air superiority and other types of savagery. So, I mean, I, so, so with respect to Bernie, though, what you're saying, there's kind of blowing my mind because, you know, when I initially watched that speech and I read his op-ed in the guardian a couple of weeks ago, you know, I thought like, this is a really important pivot away from the status quo, which is a word that he used at least like 20 times as he does. I love that man. His message discipline <laughs> is just like unparalleled in the, in perhaps in the history of humanity. He's a genius. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I mean, he talks about oh, upending the status quo, but as you point to, I think like, is he really upending the status quo? Like, is he just, as you, as you mentioned, is he just reconstructing a different kind of us versus them hyper sort of security narrative? But I'm, a, but I'm of two minds there because I think this is one way we, you need to be sort of have a critical theory perspective where you sort of just criticize people's Everything. rhetoric and postures yeah. <laughs> and logic. And, you know, it's just it's kind of like obnoxious but also necessary Frankfurt School mentality right. where you just sort of relentlessly criticize everything and, and, and stake out no positions of your own seemingly anyway. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a negative theory defined by dialectical critique, I think, is the phrase Horkheimer used. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, you know, if, if you're a, if you're a 
grad student neck beard, you know, who, who has way too much fun in graduate seminars. Like that's, that's, you know, that's the next best thing to pornography. But, and it's uh, important. It's, it's a really important, <laughs> you know, mode, you know, it not is, to, it it's a very important mode. All, but the, not the, only all mode. the Adorno heads out there are going to be sending me hate mail. Don't do it, bro. Like it's important. <laughs> We're doing it right now. But so that's, that's the one end, right? We're good dialecticians. So you have to do that. And yet, if we're serious about politics, we have to stake out our own positions right. and analyze In the, the world real, as it is. Yeah, the real pressing concrete uh, uh, threats that exist right now, which is is the rise of the far right across the globe. Right. And so he's not wrong to point to this illiberal, uh, authoritarian, kleptocratic, uh, you know, regime sort of axis that's developing around the Duterte's and Philippines. Obviously, the Bolsonaro we've spoke of. We've, we sp- spoke to uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia, Erdogan in Turkey, uh, Hungary, yeah, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Orban, yeah. these uh, neo-fascists in Ukraine. Um, you know, which by the way are hard, which by the way are, are far more American allies maybe than anyone we've listed <laughs> there. Uh, Putin obviously deserves his own special mention. I don't want to fetishize that guy, and I'm not entirely happy with the way that Bernie deals with that uh, Russophobia discourse. Right. But uh, but yeah, I've, I've thrown a lot out there. So what do you make of of the importance of that right wing rise that we're seeing uh, across the world right now? I, I I think it's important, but I, I just want to talk about one quick thing, uh, sort of a fundamental question, because I think right now, uh, 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 and I'm just honestly curious what you think about this. So there's a lot of left wing criticism, both online and, and sort of like the little magazines that we know, which is essentially arguing that the Democratic Party doesn't understand that the Soviet, not the Soviet, wow, you see where I'm going, that the Republican Party <laughs> is an existential threat yeah. and that we need to fight them. With with all all out uh, be out and which which may very may may very well be right. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about that, but it is a sort of Schmidtian way of understanding in politics as divided between friend and enemy, and it isn't ultimately an existential way. So the question I think for the left is when do you adopt that posture? When do you not? Because I think on some level, I think yeah, I think there's something there, like uh, Carl Schmidt and, and a bunch of other people actually uh, people on the left like Otto Kirchheimer and Hans Speyer. I think historians incorrectly trace this, this vision to Carl Schmitt, but there's a lot of work that, that does define politics ultimately to this, the distinction between friend and enemy, right? So is it, is it just the nature of politics itself, you know, capital P politics that you do have to construct these Manichaean um, dichotomies, even though in real historical time, like the Cold War, in my opinion, that Manichaean dichotomy led to a lot of destruction and, and uh, wanton death and destruction and a waste of money and et cetera. But also, is, is Manichaeanism necessary to politics? Do you need to identify an enemy in order to mobilize people? Because that's what I think Bernie was ultimately doing. I think Bernie was identifying a true enemy. Like authoritarians are not our friends. They are our enemies. But in, in doing that, he's sort of reusing this Manichaean Cold War uh, construction, right? But but that may, may, may very well just be politics. So this is like a really deep, maybe unovercomable tension in the nature of modern politics. These are just some of my thoughts on, on this issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think uh, returning to a conversation that I had with Heidi Matthews, who thinks a lot about Schmidt in the realm of, of like law and sovereignty and in these types of ways that, you know, Schmidt's original writings were intended to, to be to be understood, you know, through the collapse of Weimar and the right. kind of, you know, so a lot of the st- things that you study as well. And I'm sure you have maybe, maybe some, uh, you know, I don't know if you, your take is exactly similar on this, but, but to me, it's like Schmidt's distinction, uh, following, uh, Heidi here is Schmidt's distinction, uh, between friend and enemy is so essential because that's the distinction you make when you're prepared to, um, pre- I mean, you at that point you need to prepare for civil war. 
because because established order, right? Established legal, the the fiction of legal order, right? This kind of useful, uh, you know, fiction of institutional legitimacy is no more. It collapses. And society as we know it, as a realm through which we determine legality and we litigate disputes and and we enable uh, agency in a variety of ways, that is no more. It collapses. And at that point, you have to prepare for civil war, which means rally your troops, stockpile your weapons and start firing at one another. Right. Potentially. Right. Uh, and, and so to me, I think uh, where, where, that, where that friend-enemy distinction really becomes a liability, this kind of Manichaeanism that you point to, is not so much uh, – because, of course, that's cosplay, right? That's cosplay. Right. That's In actual history, it's cosplay, yeah. It's cosplay. It's LARPing. Of course, now there's a reason for it, right, which, right. which uh, the kind of military-industrial complex is sort of uh, points <laughs> to in a very naked way, right? It, it just yeah. en- it, it enriches – it enriches the the, the weapons, uh, you know, manufacturers, and it produces a very lucrative and successful and star-studded g- gala. You know, there's a lot of galas that you you get invited to as yes. being part of that political uh, policy class. It's know, a world. To, you get to wear fancy dresses and and uh, tuxedos, and you, you you give each other awards. It's really great, right? Um, yeah, but uh, but so so that's the poet. Like you think about what's the meaning of all of this? Well, the meaning is to enrich, you know, the the foreign policy or the manufacturers and produce a lot of accolades for the people in that pundit class. But but beyond that, like I think what I'm getting at is that the LARPing that goes along with that perspective on on the progressive on the progressive sectors, right? Because if you believe, and this is not a new insight, uh, but I'm just regurgitating this, but I think it's valuable. If you believe that Trump is the, the next manifestation of fascism, well, that's a, that's a diagnosis, right? That's a diagnosis and diagnoses have very specific prescriptions, right? Especially that one, which is why I think it's such a sham because yeah. clearly the hashtag resistance does either they don't or they're moral cowards, Yeah, you know, so, and, exactly. That's yeah. I mean, in, in, in a way, really in a do. way, in a way, like, I, I mean, I, I, I hate to do this because gosh, I'm, I'm going to get shit for this. Daniel, buckle up, <laughs> buckle up. my friend. I'm ready, baby. Buckle up, my friend. But but the, the reason why, like, the Richard Spencers of the world were so effective when they were sort of riding their grift, the reason why, you know, someone like Jordan Peterson, whose, I think, stock is falling, or at least his 15 minutes is almost up, but the reason why he was so effective is because he could look at these people in the face who were shouting them down as Nazis, and they could he could he they could basically say, like, in the face of – like, there's only one thing to do in the face of radical evil. Kill it. Right. Right. So you're not killing me. You're shouting at me, you know, through a microphone in an established, uh, you know, here panel discussion. You waited your turn in line to get to the microphone very respectfully. And then you got the microphone and then you start shouting at me that I'm a Nazi and a fascist. So one of two things, like you just said, you either don't believe what you're saying. That's come with the words that are coming out of your mouth. Or you do believe that I'm a Nazi and you, you don't have uh, the cojones to carry through uh, the logical sort of extension of your argument to actually do something about it, to assault me physically or kill me. Right. And then there's also the historical fact that appeals to Nazism have been great ways for essentially muscular liberalism to reassert itself over the entirety of the foreign policy establishment in American civil society. So this is also the historical reality about how the analogy has been deployed throughout the last since, since the 1940s. And it's just a really 
it's a really difficult problem because then, like you were saying, what, what, what Heidi Matthews was saying about, about sort of the friend-enemy distinction, it seems to be was mostly centered on a, a domestic society, right, where there's some sort of legitimacy. But where does, what happens when you go to the international realm when there's no sort of supranational organization? What do you do in a, in a realm of international anarchy? Is this why it's necessary for Bernie to construct this dichotomy between a kleptocratic authoritarianism and, I guess, American socialism? You know, it's unclear. Again, Bernie is a national politician, right? This is what national politicians do in presidential systems, where they have to get everyone to sign up to one of two sides. But it's unclear what's what's the opposite of the kleptocratic authoritarianism, American oligarchy. I mean, I think, and Bernie's what what Bernie I think is most concerned with, and I think correctly, is sort of overcoming that oligarchy at home. Mm, Yeah, right. But then, what I'm curious about, let's say we overcome that oligarchy at home, then how do we deal? With Russia and China, and this is what I was trying to get within the op-ed. So, for example, I think a, a, a distinction that I've really been thinking about in the last month is a distinction that I call um, between foreign policy of the state and the foreign policy of civil society. So, let's say Bernie won. I'm not sure that I would want a state organization like the the DoD or the State Department to fund left wing insurgencies, right? Because once you st- you get that precedent going, then whoever comes in next starts funding right wing insurgencies, which is which is what the CIA has been doing already, you know, for the past seventy years. But on the other hand, I don't think the left should just totally ignore internationalism. And I think we have to think about what types of organizations would be better for different types of foreign policies. Like maybe it's for left-wing organizations of civil society to start dealing with these um, you know, resistance groups abroad that are opposing fascism. But it's not up to the, the, the American state. Maybe the best thing that a left-wing leader who's in power can do is just you know rein in the executive imperial presidency, bring back the military. It might actually be defined much more by what we don't do or what we bring home than what we're able to do. And these are just sorts of the sorts of questions that I think we need to figure out, because I think there's a tendency in the U.S. uh, foreign policy establishment for action. And I'm not sure that's always the right case. And I think that there would be very strong pressures, even if a left wing person like Bernie got in there to do things when maybe that's not what we need. Right. I think you're right to say that, because one of the things that was most striking to me, I wanted to turn to this a little bit and we can we can we can talk about this. And with respect to the way that Hal Brands, our uh, Henry Kissinger distinguished uh, chair over at uh, Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, uh, say challenged you. Um, from the liberal position or, or somewhat liberal. I'm not sure where it's yeah, kind there. of liberal. Kind this of is liberal, the thing. They don't even know what say. it is anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, what's liberal about it anymore? I don't know. Uh, right. Don't know. It's a proud tradition of bleeding, you know, poor and brown people across the country, uh, across Could the world as, as a liberal. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, the, the the thing here that I couldn't help but notice immediately, on the one hand, I was very happy to hear it. But now that I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm rethinking Bernie's strategy here because he, he opens the speech by, by very, explicitly indicating that the problem with this $700 billion yearly budget uh, for militarism, the problem with this kind of hyper-militaristic and the proliferation of military bases and all the rest of it, these undeclared wars, the problem is not only that they're just unjust. I mean, he has this kind of like very strong sort of like morally driven compass when it comes to the to, to internationalism, which I think is important. But again, you mentioned it's, it, it could be hollow. Uh, it could uh, it, it needs some content. Uh, but 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 he very quickly pivots to say like it's not just the fact that this militarism and military budget is is wrong headed, it's that it 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 indicates that we have our domestic priorities all wrong. 
Right. So in a way, I mean, I was I was astonished in a way and somewhat disappointed, but also kind of like, well, this is classic Bernie messaging message discipline. Right. Where he he's Yeah, sure. He's talking about foreign policy the entire time he's making that speech. But the but the the the, the reason for it is because he's trying to sh- demonstrate that not only do we need to face down the far right and, and, you know, Trump's authoritarian agenda, but like if we if we deal with this, we can unroll uh his domestic agenda, you know, right. Medicare for all free college. We do have the money, you know, the money is being wasted in this hyper militarism that has no purpose and is actually just funding, uh, you know, foreign authoritarianism and, 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 and war and terror. And so in a way like that's, that's important. We need to make that message, but it seems that he's abnegating his responsibility or his, or his, um, the potential to carve out a real substantive foreign policy by just sort of immediately pivoting back to the domestic arena so quickly. And in, in some sense, I think it's fair to say that's not really Bernie's goal in this speech, right? And we can't expect one speech to do everything. I think, I think what, what it really shows is that there isn't a line for Bernie to pick up. You know, he's doing a million things. Um, foreign policy is just one of many things that he's going to do. It's obviously not his major focus because I think he's right. I think the, the, the problems that face the quote unquote ordinary American are mostly at home. They're not abroad. And so it makes sense. But what it, what it points to is not so much a problem with Bernie, but that again, as we've talked about in the past, there's not this left wing institutional infrastructure. There's not five policy papers that he could read and pick what he wants from it. Right. So it's, it's yeah, almost right. a, really Adam, we failed Bernie. Bernie hasn't failed us. <laughs> But in uh, the real worry. way, that's I'm true. Fl- I'm going to spend the rest of the day flogging myself. Don't worry, Gramps. <laughs> no. Gramps, we got you. We got you back. Uh, we got we. So, but I think I think that that's like a real thing. And yeah. I no, think you're, that you're we, not wrong about that. And it's, it's, same yeah. with AOC, right? I mean, I think that's right. exactly what your piece was trying to contribute to. At exactly. least an awareness. It's not her that. fault, yeah, at all. And she's, she's it's not her responsibility. And this is the problem with American politics, and also with the problem of celebrity. We make celebrities and individuals the repository of everything in our in our in our culture and our society, which is a hyper neoliberal, hyper individualistic thing to do, right? And it's it's not like. When 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 AOC doesn't get something what I would consider to be right or when Bernie didn't get something right, it's because there's nothing there's not a structure around them to support them in the ways that they need to be supported in some ways. Sometimes they they will make mistakes and it is their fault, but it's not just their fault. And the language of our politics really does focus on the heroic individual, capital H, capital I, in a way that I don't think one reflects actual politics and two is healthy for a society. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We have to form the scaffolding that they can sort of pull from and draw from if if we're going to be successful. That's really what uh, I think uh, building a left, you know, a left zeitgeist, a principled socialist, democratic socialist zeitgeist looks like is to have, you know, that kind of policy, uh, those policy buffet line or whatever, uh, or just a kind of the worldview to pull from in a knee jerk sort of way when someone uh, when a politician needs to pull pull from a, a you know pull from the, the old toolbox the toolbox is is sort of barren right now unfortunately and, and right and, and and that's why AOC didn't have a response to the Israel Palestine question because there was no toolbox from her to draw from she, there's no reason she should have you know on on her own volition and given her own life story and her own interest to have had a coherent answer on that there's nothing we no one should have that no one should be expected that what she should have is access to a series of easy to understand right but sophisticated and complex policy proposals that then she could use as her politician to bring that message to the public. So to focus on just blaming her is, again, to invest her or, or again, or Bernie or whomever it may be with this heroic quality. And it's just not the way that politics actually functions, even though it's the way politics is performed and uh, the way that politics is discussed in this country. I mean, that's that's my view. <laughs> so you're saying, whoa, whoa. So you're saying that uh, 
a, my tweet that uh, AOC is canceled was probably a little bit premature. <laughs> yes, and, uh, I histrionic. think uh, I would never say that about you. I think everything you do is right. <laughs> I like that. That's why I keep bringing no. you on, my friend. Uh, <laughs> but, but but I think I mean one more thing before we pivot into. Um, very quickly, uh, Hal Brand's uh, arguments, because I think it really does sort of represent the kind of uh, challenge we're going to get from the liberal foreign policy establishment moving forward sure. as democratic socialists. But I think one of the things that's really important here that I think if I were to say, hey, hey, Bernie, Uncle Bernie, Grant, <laughs> whatever, however we want to refer to this man. Uh, let, let me give you let me let me give you my take on how you might sort of spin this a little bit more effectively in a principled democratic socialist direction. It seems to me that what he's really trying to do is he's trying to he's caught between two currents. He's caught between this liberal foreign policy uh, establishment, and he's caught between this kind of um, I don't know this 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 reactionary, uh, seemingly out of control, inchoate. Uh, love for I mean if you say one thing about Trump he loves strong the strong man I mean, oh he yes just, he, he does yeah. he, he just I mean he just he's attracted to this to this uh, typology he, he, he loves the the personality the the machismo around it um you know he's there's no re- he, yeah he that that i think that 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 uh that that's take who he is him, yeah that's who he is you know and i don't mean to just reduce everything to psychology uh you know psychologize this man and we can no of course not but psychology everything. matters <laughs> isn't it, it the ultimate material you know the old materialist joke you don't have a body you are a body yeah so yeah. psychology matters you know right exactly it's it's a crucial data point if, if nothing else but exactly. uh, but but to, but just putting it that way you know so he's trying to thread the needle between his love for I mean you could even say his love for Putin against all uh, against all rash against all reason right the right. fact that he is openly says that he's admire, he admires this man um, Kim Jong-un uh, you know obviously falls in this very paradoxical thing like they have these they write these love letters back and forth Right, so they bizarre enjoy each other. Yeah, for American American president to, to yeah, to, both to, had abusive dads. <laughs> to, yeah, right, exactly. They talk about their daddy issues together, and uh, <laughs> but but in any case, you know, so so I think what Bernie needs to do is be more explicit about his uh, disdain and the way that he's pointing out this, the hypocrisy of the liberal foreign policy establishment, and that in, right. in terms of it's not just the fact that this far right axis is forming and rising in a very very foreboding way it's it's that we are we've created them right we have created them. our austerity you know the the eu's auster austerity agenda has enabled the rise of the neo-fascists in places like hungary and hell even even scandinavian uh, countries uh, social yeah. democratic countries as well and don't forget the destruction of the middle east <laughs> wrought by wrought armed and funded by the united states <laughs> absolutely we have been yeah. um, funneling weapons and arms and aid foreign aid into into decades places <laughs> like israel and um saudi arabia and all of these other ultra far-right regimes that are in many you know terrorizing the region and their own populations uh you know look i mean hell i don't even need to say anything about what i've been doing in south america for the right. last uh 50 some odd years well, since its existence perhaps you might say. Yeah, let's let's go back to 1770s yeah, how far Maybe. back can we go we need to go to talk about yeah. south, america, south south and central america yeah, quite a long time <laughs> so so that's to say that i think like he needs to be more direct uh in in pointing out that the failures of the liberal foreign policy establishments and and, and the hypocrisy and the fact that like it's not just the case that these people are objectively evil this the rise the far right, but it's that we are creating and enabling their rise. And our system and our way of viewing the world has tended toward this. 
you know, I, I'm a historian. I don't think anything's overdetermined, but clearly there are tendencies in the disasters that have been American foreign policy since 1945, which is the period that I focus on the most. Um, now, the question is, can Bernie do that when he's trying to win the Democratic Party nomination? <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Prob- probably not. But he needs people who are able to do that once if and uh, hopefully when he wins or if he runs <laughs> I think, I think, will. I think he's, he's really tied. He's really hamstrung here because in a way he's really pivoting. I think very, uh, month by month, he's coming closer and closer to what, uh, something like a, a, a Corbinite position. Right. Uh, would look like given in the American context. I mean, he's coming right. very, very close inch by inch. He's making progress, I think. And he's, he's really kind of, uh, yeah, trying to carve out uh, an Amer- American style Corbinism, right? Uh, but at the same time, if if he's if he's too cautious and he's not direct enough in his analysis, he's not doing the work of educating right. uh, his base that right. he's going to desperately need in order to move this project forward into the twenty twenty primaries. Um, he's not creating the same kind of Corbinite base, the 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 UK momentum style base that was so instrumental in bringing Corbin to power in the first place. And so this triangulation in a, in, a, in an arena like SACE is understandable, but it's also risky. Right. No, totally. And I think I think this is the difficulty of politics. It's super fucking hard, (laughs) especially if you're a left outsider candidate trying to change like this hyper status quo system. (laughs) Yeah. Saying there's a chance. (laughs) Yeah, there's a chance. I mean, there's a chance. There's always a chance. There's always a chance. But uh, should we talk about this Hal, Hal Brands? Let, let's wrap up on that. So Hal Brands, who is a professor, uh, distinguished, uh, I guess, if, you, if you're a Kissinger distinguished professor, you're distinguished for, like, you know, barbarism and war crimes. I don't know what's distinguished about uh, Henry Kissinger, but in any case. But but just to, just to give a, a background, I mean, Hal, Hal has written an enormous amount of books for a young historian. Um, so it's, so it's, he, he's very young. I, I don't think he's much older than me. I'm, I'm about to turn 34 tomorrow, actually. Um, Happy so I don't think he's, lady. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, yeah. advanced foreshadowed, but, uh, but anyway, so how's, how's a very, very successful historian has written something like four or five books and is, um, respected in, 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 uh, in the field of diplomatic history, what might be termed, um, Diplomatic history and has risen very, very far and very fast in his career in a, in a startling, um, impressive, I guess, way. <laughs> he's a Bloomberg uh, opinion columnist, so it's not he's not just a dusty academic or he doesn't just right. produce white papers, which he does all of those things as well. But I'm sure. Yes. But uh, but he's also kind of the voice of a certain kind of, uh, you know, history of foreign policy. The young voice, really one of the few young voices in that sort of John Lewis Gaddis uh, great power politics field. So, so let's spell out spell out for our audience and for me as well. I'm not as well versed in this debate as you are. Clearly, <laughs> shocker how that works. I'm sure that swamped a, a large uh, portion of your life when uh, yes. whenever you're in a public debate, like it just sort of has a way. I have friends who've been in, admired in these things, and it can be very generative, but it can also be very stressful. It sort of consumes like a better part of a couple of weeks of your life when you're when you're in this. So, to, so what were some of Brand's objections to the way that you framed your your uh, strategy in the New York Times? Sure. So it, it was it was actually interesting because his major objection was that I was calling for renewed isolationism and that this is exactly what Trump was calling for. So the, the hopes of what might be termed the liberal international order would be would be completely rejected. And, and he referred to me as part of the far left and he referred to drunk uh, Trump. <laughs> he referred to Trump as part of the far right. Um, and so he said that like sort of the horseshoe theory, this is where we met. 
But uh, to me, I, I at least read it as a bit of a disingenuous uh, uh, critique because the the fifth point, which you didn't actually get to in my in my op ed, so to really hit this home, was internationalism, which uh, I I don't think that the United States, for a variety of reasons, probably most importantly, is that they're they're uh, we are literally the number one superpower in the world. We're the richest country in a real way. We absolutely control the largest military structure. It's just not possible for the United States to adopt an isolationist position and probably not even desirable because, I mean, ultimately we all want to live in socialist Star Trek utopia and that's going to be um, come about by building connections. And so international connections are good things. We're bringing, uh, getting down uh, rid of the nation state. But the question is, is how we engage in it. And, and I can only imagine is that how, whether or not, he even reads it as this is that the fact that I that I said, for example, we need to rethink the hierarchic economic order where the United States consumer is the is the ultimate subject and object of, of all of world history, where that everything is justified with relation to the to the um, American consumer. And I think you and I, who are probably working on Apple products and iPhones, are 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 That's themselves right. we're we're part of this system. But I think. Um, we need we need to rethink like that. I think I think we uh, need to do actually pressure uh, our allies, quote unquote, like like Saudi Arabia, by withholding arms sales or by actually pressuring them uh, to do to, to to respect human rights and things like that. And, and how, from what I didn't even address these points, from what I remember, um, so I I, I I guess they they seem to him to be very far beyond the pale because it seems to be very obvious. And I think he got a lot of critique. From both the left and the right, that that clearly I'm not I wasn't advocating anything close to what Trump's foreign policy is, which in many ways what we're seeing, I think, at least and, and the archives will reveal whether I'm right or not. We're seeing what happens when the empire essentially doesn't have a head. You know, who knows what the hell the military is doing abroad right now? Uh, with without you know with Trump barely able to maintain his attentions to figure out what's going on. So this this was this was House critique, and I just I, it, to me it really shows this sort of intellectual bankruptcy at the heart of centrist liberalism right now that they don't really know what they're doing. Right. Like because his, this critique was so inarticulate and incoherent that I couldn't imagine what exactly he was saying. Well, it's it's what we talked what we pointed to uh, at the beginning of our conversation is that um, their analysis. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like wearing a, a pair of broken glasses, right? right. Like if, if you're wearing cracked glasses, the world is going to look skewed or you're just going to miss things, right? It's like their, their analytical framework is incapable of capturing the dynamics that are so, so, you know, forcefully impacting the outcomes in, in, right. in, in the world society right now. And, They're so uh, obvious to some degree. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, you'd have to be, you'd have to be a heart of a sight to, to, to miss it. And right. yeah, well, th that's it, right? Their analysis, it, it, their brains are, when I say their brains are broken and we dead, we have this dead pundit society. It's not <laughs> that they're, that they're they're you know not smart or or somehow you know hopelessly corrupt or or cynical or whatever uh they're 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 their analytical the analytical framework that they've used to to uh, to understand the world over the past i don't know 50 75 some odd years is just irreparably broken at this point right and and it's it's, it's ironic that a historian doesn't appreciate that <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. So, um, signing off here, we got to get you out the door. You are traveling, you. I guess, for your birthday. You're headed uh, over. To no, no, no. I'm giving some talks in England, not for my birthday. <laughs> oh no, no, no. You're going to uh, Bali for your birthday. Yeah, right? I'm going to Bali. Yeah, it's going to be a really exciting birthday. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. Or Davos. Maybe you're headed to Davos. Ooh, Davos. To, to I've speak, been finally been invited uh, for the uh, Democratic Socialist International. 
uh, conference <laughs> that they have there every the year. The counter conference. They used to do those in the 60s. That's right. I blacked <laughs> out. Uh, I, I, was, I, I just found myself in 2040. Things are good. Uh, the world hasn't been swallowed by the sun. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Davos is beautiful. You should see it. You can't wait. Uh, full gay space communism for everyone. That sounds great. <laughs> oh, sounds lovely. So, yeah, you've got to get out the door, but just give us one uh, final one final clarion call in the classic uh, Besnerian, Besnerian <laughs> uh, fashion. What 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 kind of internationalism do we need to start thinking about uh, moving forward? What is your what what is your uh, your 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 you're, you're in the locker room with Bernie Sanders. You guys just watched a uh, <laughs> film from the game. You know, you're, you're breaking oh. down, you're breaking down the X's and O's. You're thinking through the, the various plays and the missteps. Um, what do, what do I tell Bernie? What, what, what tell I would, Bernie? what I would actually, I think if I had one foreign policy, like major overarching goal that, that aligns with my political values is I think that we could start chipping down at the ideological structure that is modern nationalism by trying to create some sort of true union with Mexico and Canada in a way that Mexico doesn't just become the sort of source of raw materials and labor that it's been throughout uh, much of American history, that we, we begin to build an anti-hierarchical economic relationship on a, on a transnational scale uh, beginning in the Western Hemisphere, which is something that I believe uh, is possible and could really make a lot of people's lives in this hemisphere better and then ultimately build out from there and see what works, see what doesn't begin to actually transcend capitalism and nationalism and then start to, you know, create these structures that will hopefully be able to be exported or really not even exported, but consciously and willingly imported to elsewhere in the world. So we could begin creating the world we want to live in. <laughs> well said. And a final uh, follow up to that. I mean, we haven't talked about AMLO. We haven't talked about right. the exciting ways in which people are taking uh, the politics within national right. borders very seriously. But a lot of people, uh, not just Hal Brand, but also people uh, brands, Hal Brands rather, but people on the left, uh, the socialist left, even sort of will immediately decry some of these projects as as uh, as unduly nationalist uh, or overly nationalist, or, or uh, that th- we're abandoning this kind of uh, internationalist appeal or whatever else. And right. to sort of crib off of something you said on your previous DPS uh, appearances, you've said you know something to the effect of internationalism is not uh, a foreign policy. It's an ethos. It's an aspiration. And so how do we take these kind of domestic agendas, these nationalist projects seriously? And, you know, you think about like, say, uh, Brexit or Alexit, uh, you know, the, the Corbinite project of trying to carry on with Brexit and, and establish uh, socialism without losing its uh, internationalist socialist roots. Uh, how, how do you thread that needle? Well, I mean, what's a what's what's a way for us to qu- sort of understand that? Give us give us a quick little elevator speech on that. No, no, for sure. Well, I think the way to really do it is to think what what's actually in your possibility right now to look at your economic relationships. So, so if I'm not wrong, I think Mexico is one of, if not the largest trading partner with the United States, and so and and as is Canada because they're obviously on our borders. And so I think uh, also culturally these countries have been informing each other forever. So what we have to do is think about creative ways as a left to transcend the national borders within which we are operating, our governments, our national, et cetera, et cetera, our cultures to a large degree national. And I think a way to do that is just in. Ge- 
geographic spaces that are close to home. And so also it's like hard to imagine a more um, exploitative economic relationship than the one the United States has historically had with Mexico. So actually beginning to change that in our own lives, maybe beginning to change consumer capitalism, where again, the consumer is the ultimate subject and object of history. That's a very recent invention from the 60s. Uh, so beginning to rethink new ways uh, of living in the world. And that will eventually, I think, hopefully allow us to transcend things like capitalism and nationalism altogether, but working towards that in very concrete ways. Not the only way. I think other parts of the left movement should do all tons of different things, but thinking about ways we could do that in the policy arena and specifically through foreign policy is a, a project that I think worthwhile. Well said. Uh, very good stuff. Daniel Bessner, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Just a quick reminder to folks, he is the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. Uh, you've got a book on the RAND Corporation that's going to be uh, coming out in the coming year or two. Well, more, more than that, probably. But more you know more than that, I'm being aspira- we're being aspirational here. We are you? aspirational here. Act as if. <laughs> Unfortunately, you've got. I, I, hear, I hear you've got some access to archives that is yes. going to be limited in the coming years, and so the historians out there uh, should should uh, sympathize with that. Some archives that are essential to your project uh, are going to be closed for a little while, which might push the publication of that book back. But uh, you got the Rand archives are going to be closed. No. The, the Rand archives will be open. Yes, the Rand archives will be open, but the Hoover Institution archives are the ones that are. Yes, sorry. So just to be specific, uh, the Hoover Institution archives are the ones that are closed. <laughs> what, a, what a pain in the ass! So yeah, we'll what a pain in the ass, goes. man. You've got yeah. an edited volume uh, coming out. Is that yes. is that correct? In the autumn of 2018, tease that real quick. It, it should be coming out any any day now. If you're anyone interested in how Carl Schmidt's thoughts. And the idea of decision and decisionism continues to structure how we view the world from everything from IR theory to judicial sentencing. Uh, you should check it out. It's called The Decisionist Imagination, and I co-authored it with a brilliant scholar named Nicola Guillo. Excellent. So nice pitch there. We'll put all that up in the show notes. Daniel Bessner, thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, Adam. Always a pleasure. <laughs> And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again to Daniel Bessner. Pleasure as always. And once again, I'm going to make one more pitch for our Patreon. We're looking to expand our operations in the coming weeks, and uh, we really need your support, people. We really, really need that solidarity. So reach deep into your pockets and into your hearts and become members of the Dead Pundit Society. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member for $5 or more per month. Or as I mentioned in the opening of the show, we're asking people to donate one hour's wage per month to this project because I think we do really great work. And uh, it's really important that my guests have their voices uh, projected out there into the stratosphere because we're doing important stuff. And uh, this moment requires smart, interesting, provocative, informed voices. And uh, I think we do that here at Dead Pundit Society. So uh, subscribe, support the show. And you'll get access to a weekly B-side that airs at the end of each week. So a uh, little something for you, a little something for us. Let's build socialism together, people. All right. Until later this week, Dead Pundit, out. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... <laughs>